whatever groupies. He wants people to be Jesus groupies. That's who you should be fascinated with. Um, we got to spend the whole day. It was a, a fellowship. It was, it was just a, a nice experience to be preached to by D.A. Carson, um, expounding the gospel, telling us what the gospel is and, and how it's applied, the effects of the gospel. It was just glorious. We had lunch together, and then uh, we parked right outside when we got out. Um, Joe and I, we were still talking. We got out, and the car was not there. That was glorious. The car was literally not there. The car was gone. And, you know, we're men of faith. We started walking around, praying and, <laughs> praying and hoping that we had come out through the wrong door, which we did. And then all of a sudden, we turn around the corner and we see the car and we praise Jesus. My car was lost and now it's found. <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, and <laughs> it was... It was a neat experience. Uh, now, I was very blessed. We talked about this. I was very blessed in seeing that um, there was a bunch of men, not only young guys, but uh, not only young people, but young guys, a bunch of men, uh, young men that loved Jesus, raising their hands, singing to Jesus, just drinking it all in. It was awesome. And uh, it's something that I'm, um, I'm very glad that we are blessed with something that many churches are not. Uh, for whatever reason, God has blessed us in this church with men that love Jesus. We have men here that love Jesus. However imperfect we are, but we do have men here that love Jesus. And, and that's a blessing. And that's a blessing. God has a, a high calling for us in His book. Now, I'll stop yapping and um, let's go, if you have your Bible, to John 7. If you have our Bibles, let's go. John 7. We're going to be reading verses uh, 40 through 52. Now, message today is very, very simple. Um, as we come to it today, we come to a very practical uh, text of the Bible, very practical message, simple and practical. If you know me at all, you know that my, my first aim, my first goal is not to be immediately practical. I don't believe that for a moment. This is the main goal of, of, um, of exposition, of studying the Bible, of preaching. I'm not saying that we don't have to be practical, but what I am saying is that my main goal is that your affections for Christ would be raised, as, would be increased as we preach the gospel to you. As we try as hard as we can to unpack the nature and character of God to you, so that you can know God, it turns out that this can be incredibly handy when life is happening to you. When the storms of life hit you and you know your God, that comes in incredibly handy. It turns out to be very practical. My goal is not to come here and give you tips on how to live your life. Because one, I'm no example. Uh, uh, I'm no. I'm no better than the devil to give you good tips on how to live life. But my main goal is that as I unpack, unpack scripture, you would know the nature and character of God, so that you can live for your glory and um, for His glory and your joy. 
without any hope in your own capacities, but only on what He has done for you. Amen? Let's read, I'll pray, and then uh, we'll talk about this text. Like I said, it's simple. We're just going to walk through it, and this text is going to leave us with uh, a main question, which is the question, pretty much, what John is trying to do throughout the whole book, who is Jesus? That's what John does throughout the whole book of John. Who this Jesus is? He is the living water. He is the bread, the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the Son of God with equal authority and power. He is the judge of the whole earth. He is the, the author of life. That's what John is doing, has been doing in this series, and he will keep doing it until the day we, God willing, um, finished. So that's pretty much what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this text, we're going to see a few things, and then we're going to try to answer for ourselves, who is Jesus? Amen? So this is what the Word of God says, verses 40 through 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one has ever spoken like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of all the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophets arise, arises from Galilee. Father, as we come to this uh, portion of your sacred literature, of your uh, holy scripture, I pray that you would reveal your Son to us. I pray that among all of these reactions to his claims, we would have a reaction of worship. That we would respond to his beauty, to his holiness by having a broken and contrite heart that can come only from you. I pray that you grant that heart to us this morning. I pray that Scripture would be alive and that we wouldn't only know Scripture, but know the Jesus of the Scripture, unlike some of the doctors of the law. I pray that you would cause worship to rise today as Jesus increases and I decrease. I pray that for your glory, Father, and for our eternal joy. Amen.
Amen. Like I said, we're going to look at um, the reactions to the claims of Jesus. What are the claims of Jesus? This is, this is that celebration, the Feast of the Tabernacles, where they would acknowledge their utter dependence on God. It's a whole feast designed for them to declare how God is their provider. They would remember the old days when God had provided to them in the desert when they got lost. They got out of Egypt. And then in the desert, God had provided water to them. God was their provider. And there was a ritual where during that ritual, they would, they would, the priest would grab water from, and they would recite, they would recite uh, Isaiah 12.3. They would say, with joy you shall, uh, you shall uh, get water from, draw water from the wells of salvation. And by that, they would be celebrating the provision of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, and providing for them, declaring that God is their provider. They would also thank God for the last harvest, for God providing rain for the crops to grow. And they would pray to their provider, their ultimate provider, for rain for the next harvest, so that they could be fed, they could be employed, they could survive as a nation. There would be no famine. There was a climatic moment in the last day of the feast, which they called the Great Day, where the whole thing culminated in this celebration, where the priest would go up and he would pour the water at the altar. And at that moment, there was great silence, and they would look, everybody's experiencing it. It's a great moment of the celebration. Everything throughout the, whole, the last week, seven or eight days, has just built up to this one moment. And then normally what would happen is that as he drops the water, as he pours out the water, the crowd after that moment would experience that and explode in worship and celebration. At that moment, Jesus probably elevated somewhere. Jesus cries out from the top of his lungs in verse 37. Let's hear what Jesus says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of him shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus loudly proclaims that he is the point of the whole celebration. He is the point of this God-ordained feast. He is their provider. He steals the climatic moment and he points the whole nation to himself. And he invites everybody to come and drink. Meaning, believe in me, and you will have rivers of living water, which is an allusion to the Holy Spirit that would come, John interprets it, for us. So we come to verse 40. When they heard these things, they, the crowd, when they heard these things, some of the people said, this, is, this really is the prophet. So that, this is the first reaction that we get, that John gives us. The first reaction in the crowd is, he is the prophet. Why do they say the prophet? This is a reference to, to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. If you have your Bible, I do want to read. I want you to look at the pages because this is a prophecy from, from Moses where he promises that a prophet like himself would come later to the nation of Israel. We're going to take a look at two verses in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. Uh, the verses are 15 and 18. Okay? So here it is. Verse 15, Moses is talking, right? The Lord your God will raise up for you 
a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Remember this because this is key uh, later on in the message. Um, and then verse 18 says this, I will rise up for them a prophet like you, God talking to Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, this sounds like Jesus in chapter 5 saying, I only do what my Father tells me to do. I only say what he tells me to say. I only judge with the judgment that he gives me. So, uh, just to be sure, Peter in chapter 3 of the book of Acts, he does apply this to Jesus. This prophet is Jesus. So, the first, the first reaction we have is a reaction of, of belief. You know, some in the crowd are, are saying, you know, this is the prophet. They acknowledge that the prophet that God had promised through Moses is Jesus. Now, while this is a great beginning, it's not enough. You know, it's a good start. After all, we are told in chapter 3 of, of John that that's exactly how Nicodemus starts. He come, remember, he comes to Jesus and he says, We know, Rabbi, that you are a prophet come from God he believed, he believed, because if God is not with someone, someone cannot do something like this. The works you do, God has to be with you. So he acknowledges that Jesus is a prophet. And later on, even in this text, we'll see that Nicodemus starts believing in Jesus. So uh, it's a great beginning, but it's definitely not enough. After all, also many other religions and belief systems will say that Jesus is a prophet. There's one major world religion, Islam, that will acknowledge that Jesus is a prophet. He's not the greatest of the prophets, not, nor the last prophet, but they will say, oh yeah, he's a prophet. You know, some people will acknowledge that he's from God, but, I mean, he's not God incarnate, the Son of God, no. You know, so it's a great path to be in. If that's a beginning, it's going to lead you to, to a correct belief on Jesus. But it's definitely not enough. Uh, the rest of the verse, let's, let's keep going because now we'll see the ones that believe him. The second reaction we get is the ones that believed Jesus. Forty-one. Others said, this is the Christ. This is the Christ. Now, these guys, they have received the truth. Jesus has just claimed to be living water, to be the one that if they believe, they will have living water, they will have the Holy Spirit. He has just claimed to be the whole point of the whole celebration of the whole nation of Israel. He just, just claimed to be God. And these guys... They look at it, they hear him teaching, and they go, this is the Christ. That's exactly what they said. This is surely the Christ. They receive the truth. Now, I want you to see that this is not a safe statement. This is just not a safe statement. To say that he is a prophet, or the prophet, is already dangerous enough. Remember verse 13? You don't remember. We're going to have to look at it. Verse 13, the crowd didn't say anything because they were scared of the leaders. 
Okay? You know, some said he's a good man, others said, oh no, he's leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, the national Jewish leadership, no one spoke openly of him. This is like three days earlier, when Jesus got there in the middle of the feast, you know, because he got there in the middle of the feast and he starts teaching. Some that had this reaction, oh, he's a good man, no, he is leading people astray. But they were all muttering. They were not really talking openly because they knew that the authorities wanted to kill him and they didn't want to go public. They were all afraid of the national Jewish leadership. Now, I want to point out the boldness that comes with believing Jesus. Because where is this fear now? In verse 41, just three, maybe four days later, where they're speaking publicly, openly. He is the Christ. There's, they're not scared of men anymore. They have faith. They are, right now, they realize that God is fulfilling the promise. God, the wait is over, guys. The kingdom of God is being ushered in. The Messiah has just come. What can man do to you? Faith in God. Hope in God. The faithfulness of God has just in them has just swallowed up the fear of man. Faith in God will always, always beat the fear of man. Faith in God always swallows up the fear of man. Now, Moving on to the second part of, of verse 41. Let's, let's just keep reading. This is the Christ. You know, they believe, they're persuaded, they welcome the truth. But then comes, you know, the naysayer or naysayers. Hmm. Casting doubt among the crowd. This is what they say. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Now they're putting a question on where is the Christ supposed to come from? Let's keep going. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among them. Some believed and some are not, not believing. They're saying, he's not supposed to come from, from Galilee. He's supposed to come from Bethlehem. Now, is this reason enough to reject Jesus? The scripture says the Messiah is going to come from, from Bethlehem. Jesus comes from Galilee. Is this reason enough to reject Jesus? Yes. Yes, the scripture will not be wrong. God does not have an oops moment. Oh, he was born somewhere else. That is reason enough to deny Jesus, to deny that he is the Messiah. And they would be right. They would be right in rejecting Jesus if it were true that Jesus was born in Galilee. They know the scripture. They understand the scripture. They, in, in Micah 5.2, God says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, Ephrata uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. They rightly understood this portion of Scripture to be a, a, a promise of the Messiah, to be a messianic prophecy. 
they rightly interpreted the scripture. At this point, their problem is not a lack of knowledge of the law or, or, or the prophecy. Interpreting wrong. That is not their problem. They know the scripture, but they don't know the Jesus of the scripture. They don't know the Jesus of whom the scripture testifies. Doesn't Jesus say to the Pharisees in John 5.39, you know, you search the scripture thinking that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they that testify of me. They know, these guys, at least this portion of the scripture, they know and they interpret it right. But they have their minds made up. They just reject Jesus right away. They rightly acknowledge that this is a, a, a prophecy about the Messiah, but Jesus does not fit. We're going to reject Him. We're not even going to ask Him. And, and that's that. All they had to do was ask. You know what? There's some evidence you've been doing some crazy stuff that, we, I mean, God has to be with you. But there's a problem, you know. Our scripture says that the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And you come from Galilee. Oh, so you have an open, honest question? Yeah, you know, I was actually born in Bethlehem. I was actually born there. But Jesus does not commit himself to unbelief. To willful, rebellious unbelief. Someone has a question and they come to Jesus and they're trying to figure it out. They're troubled. Jesus has no problem in being tender and being meek and embracing them. But willful unbelief, Jesus does not commit himself to. In chapter 2, we're told by the scriptures, by John, that Jesus did not commit them, himself to them, even though them, these men, they were claiming to believe Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in the hearts of men. So Jesus is not committed to willful, deliberate unbelief. I will not believe this. Don't confuse me with the facts. I have my mind made up. Now, willful unbelief is very committed to itself. It doesn't matter what happened, they would not believe. And I have seen that. And this is going to come in incredibly practical for you guys because as God makes His appeal through you, like the letter to the Corinthians says, that it is God making His appeal through us, that we are ambassadors. As God makes His appeal through you for people, to people to be reconciled to Him, you're going to run into this. Expect to run into this. They did it to Jesus Himself. You're going to run into this and you're not to lose your mind over it. Because it's not under your control. You can argue persuasively and winsomely and, and present them with the truth. And they might just look in your eye and say, no, I will not believe it. I, ha I have seen this happening many times. I have interacted with people and, and that has happened to me. Uh, one of the, the most remarkable ones, when uh, a few years ago I broke my leg and I was home for like three months. It was, it was a nightmare. I was bored out of my mind. And then one day someone knocked on my door at night and it was two Mormon missionaries. I leapt. I mean, I didn't leap because, you know, but I, I, in my heart I leapt for joy. Someone to talk to. The idea that now I would be able to talk scripture with unbelievers it revigorated me. It's like, oh, fine, I can do something, you know. 
and something that I particularly um, enjoy doing. So I accept their visit, and they were pretty nice kids too. I accept their visit, we schedule another visit and another one. They came to my house, I don't know, like five, six times maybe, and I presented them. We spoke about scripture, and I presented them. I didn't want to go into a bunch of subjects, you know. During those week after week, I presented them with what I think to be very compelling, clear arguments on the triune nature of God, biblical arguments, biblical evidence, on the triune nature of God and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. Just to watch them, week after week after week, reject my biblical evidences, one by one by one, one after the other, without giving me a refutation. For no rhyme or reason, just either change it to another subject and wanting to discuss paradise or something, you know, which uh, we can talk about that, but let's focus on, on the things of first importance, like Paul says. Week after, their minds were made up. There was no dialogue. There was no that Week after week, and would unpack Ephesians 2 on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and as I finished giving them my understanding of the passage, they would literally close the Bible and open the other book and, and start a different subject because their minds were made up. And sometimes they would even... I mean, if you have ever had a talk with a Jehovah's Witness, this is exactly how it goes. They'll use the Bible to give you biblical reasons why Jesus is not God. It, uh, it can be maddening. It can, be, it can drive you insane. Uh, but that's exactly, that's exactly what they do. They, they, if your mind is made up, willful, committed unbelief will just not believe. And you have to be okay with it. You have to be okay with it because the warfare is not against people, but it's against, um, it is against um, uh, uh, spiritual powers. It's not against flesh and bones. And much of the war is done in prayer, not only in, in argumentation. They did it to Jesus, trust me. They're going to do it to you. I don't think there was a clearer teacher than, than Jesus, a better teacher than the Son of God incarnate. You know, and Jesus could very well walk up to them and say, Oh, you know, you guys, I understand your concern, but I am from Bethlehem. So they didn't come to Jesus and ask, Jesus could have walked up to them and said, you know, I know you guys, you know, I commend you guys for knowing the scripture. I was actually born in Bethlehem and clarifying this to them so that they would believe. But notice that Jesus does not defend his claim exactly because of that, because of willful, committed, unbelief, made up minds that will not believe no matter what. No matter what. And the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man will say from hell, you say, you know, Abraham, uh, send someone there to preach to my brothers. You know, and in that passage, Abraham will say to him, you know, they, they didn't believe the law and the prophets. They will, trust me, they will not believe even if someone raises from the dead and, and tells them. They just will not believe. 
they just will not believe. It's willful, committed, deliberate unbelief. And then verse 30, 43 will say that uh, uh, there's a division among the people. Jesus leaves them. Let's not forget, Jesus leaves them in their willful uh, uh, rejection, ignorant rejection. And then verses uh, uh, 33 and, uh, I mean, 43 and 44, let's read them. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So this is kind of good news to me because, you know, there was a division. Some were saying, he is the Christ, and they just believe that the, the kingdom of God has just come in. God has fulfilled the promise. God has, after all, been faithful to them, you know. Hundreds of years waiting for this, for this Messiah. Hundreds of years of silence until John the Baptist. And now the Messiah has come. They're all happy. They believe Jesus is the Christ. Then there's opposition, right? There's opposition. They come to them. No, He is not. He comes from Galilee. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. He's not the Messiah. So there's opposition. There's this division. But the good news is that these guys, the convinced the believers, the new believers, they endure because there's a division, right? There's a division. They endure and they persevere throughout the opposition. They keep believing. And the sad part is that the others keep not believing in their hard-hearted state. The other thing we see is that the believers praise Him he is the Christ. They proclaim, proclaim, proclaim it publicly, openly, without the fear of the authorities. And then the naysayers want him arrested. They want to arrest him. And once again, we can praise God for the, the safety of Jesus that is clearly supernatural. Because the authorities want him, want him arrested. Now some of the people want him arrested. And no one, no one lays hands on him. It's a supernatural intervention, protection from God. Now, God is sovereign. Psalm 115.3, we recited it last, last time we were together. Who remembers? The Lord is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. God is sovereign, even over, over even over the sinful, wicked purposes of the hearts of men. They want to arrest Him. They're in opposition to Him. They don't like what He's saying. They rejected Him, the authorities and some of the people. Yet, Jesus is speaking openly. He's just there. No one touches Him. But early on, we said that they didn't... The, the, the Bible says that... Um, they did not touch him because, because his hour had not yet come. Verse 30, uh, it says, They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. God is in complete control of whatever is happening, even, to the opposition, even of the opposition to Jesus. God is in clear control control of everything that is happening. This is Jesus' supernatural safety. Okay. I know that you guys want to kill him. It's not his time yet. I appointed a different time so no one touches him. And that's that. 
and that's the end of the story. Now, that's got to be encouraging to you. Unless you don't face any opposition ever. Because if you belong to this God, one, as long as you have faith in Him, your faith, the faithfulness of God in you, is going to crush the fear of men. And even if men grab a hold, grabs a hold of you, you know that God is sovereign, even over their wicked purposes. And you can trust this God who is faithful, creator of the universe, who loves His children. That's got to be comforting and encouraging. His hour has not yet come. So, I won't let you arrest Him now. Now let's read, we're going to read a, a larger portion of four verses, uh, verses 45 through 49. This is, this is awesome. Uh, I'll try to not laugh. The officers then came to the chief priests and, chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have, you, have any of the authorities of the Pharisees being, believed in Him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You can just hear the pastoral heart for their people here. They're accursed. You can just hear how they, they, they love their people, their nation, their sheep. Um, you know, the tenderheartedness. But... Just bear with me. The, the officers... I want to do something here. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. Now, we know through verse 37 that this is the last day of the feast, right? And the last day, the great day. Jesus said these things and then now there's a reaction. Okay? The Pharisees are not liking it at all. The, the, the chief officers came to Him. But... We are told that Jesus came to the party in the middle of the feast, in the beginning of the chapter, right? Verse uh, 14. I want you to look at this. Just bear with me. Verse, verse 14. About the, mi the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So this is a week long, probably seven, maybe eight days. Uh, commentators divide on it. Seven, maybe eight days of, of this celebration. Jesus comes in the middle of the feast and starts teaching. So it's probably third or fourth day, right? He is there teaching, and then there's some reactions. Um, the Pharisees don't like it, because some people actually believe Jesus back then in the third or fourth day of the, 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 the celebration. Then verse 32 says this, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, you know, that some had believed Him. Muttering these things about Him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, when did, when did the, the, the leadership send the officers to arrest him? The middle of the feast. Third or fourth day. Let, let's just call it fourth day of the party. The fourth day. Now, verse 37 says that what's going on today that we're preaching on today, it's the last day of the feast. So this is at least three days later. They dispatched the police, the temple police, to arrest Jesus, who is right there on Wednesday. This is Saturday afternoon, and they come back only now. They were gone for like three days. They were gone for three days. Now, the Pharisees, they're having a horrible day, okay? They're having a horrible day. Now, now there's people 
in the crowd that believe this Jesus. Some think he is the uh, prophet that was promised by Moses. Some go as far as saying that he is the Messiah. They're having a horrible day. This Jesus that they wanted to arrest has just stolen the whole celebration, the climatic moment of the celebration. Jesus stole it and invited the whole nation of Israel to believe in Him. He just claimed to be the unique Son of God, the one who can provide, the one in whom the nation depends. So they're having a horrible day. And now the, 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 the police, the temple police, they just come in and they're like, okay, great, finally someone, something good happened to us. Now this Jesus is arrested. They come in empty-handed. Where is he? Oh, uh, we didn't arrest him. Why in, he's right, why in the world didn't you arrest him? Because, I mean, you've got to hear this man. No one has ever preached like he does. No one has ever spoken like him. We are not arresting him. Their reaction, the priests, the chief priests, reaction is, children, forgive me, you are a bunch of stupid people. You are, are you stupid? Has any of us believed this man? We have degrees. You don't. You're stupid. You're like th th these common people. You don't have the right to do theology. We have more degrees than a thermometer, okay? We tell you what to believe. You don't believe. Just, you're allowed to have an opinion now? This is a tactic of the cults. Same thing, only leadership can have opinions and they tell you what to believe. It's very common in all of the cults. Only the leader or leaders can have a theological opinion. Common people are not allowed to do theology, to believe their God and to say, I, I think He's the Messiah. They're not. And they're, they're also appealing to their ego. Because, I mean, the temple police, they were, they were just a little bit above in society. They were just a little bit above the common peasant, the common people. You know. So they're appealing. Are you on their side now? You want to go with the common, stupid, accursed people? Or you want to come to us? See, we don't believe in Him. Have we worshipped Him? And I want you to bear with me because the implied answer, you know, it's a rhetorical question. They're saying, has, has any of us believed this Jesus? No. That's a rhetorical question, and the answer is obvious in their minds is no. None of us in the leadership believe Jesus. But I want you to just read the rest of the verses. Let's just keep going, because their day that is going very badly is about to take another turn south. Now it's going to get really bad. Their day is just going to get really bad. This is going to be Pharisees gone wild. <laughs> Where am I? Have any of the authorities... Let's just start with 48 so we can get the flavor. They're mad, right? They're yelling at them, calling their stu them stupid. You know, and they're like, you know what? We, the, the, the temple police is saying, you know, we may be stupid, we may be accursed and ignorant of the law, okay? And now we may be filing for unemployment... But we are not arresting him. To which they reply, they, the Pharisees, the chief priests, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? 
But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, now who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus is referred to, referred as the teacher of Israel by none other than Jesus himself. Nicodemus is one of their heavy weights. Theologically, one of their heavy weights. The teacher of Israel. Right? Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, they have just found out that not only the stupid, accursed people that does not know the law, they believe this Jesus, but the answer to the question they pose in verse 48, has any of us believed in him? The answer is not no. The answer is yes. And it wasn't just one of us, one of the 7,000 Pharisees. It was one of our top guys. One of the bigwigs just believed that Jesus, oh no, 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 he's sympathetic to Jesus now. And Nicodemus being a theologian that, that he was, he goes back to the law. You see that he doesn't attack them personally. He's just saying, is this what our law is about? This is a... I mean, all we did here was to judge this guy and condemn him. There's only one thing we didn't do. We didn't ask him. We didn't talk to him. No hearing, no interrogation, no nothing. Is this what we do here? Is that what the law prescribes? That we just condemn someone because we don't like them. He's, he goes straight back to the law and gives them a biblical argument. And you know what is the scariest thing in, the, in this dialogue? Is that the chief priests, they do not, they do not dispute Nicodemus' argument. They don't say, oh, the law gives us basis to do what we're doing. We don't have to hear him. We don't have to ask him any questions. We can just condemn him at will because we don't like him. They don't say that. They do not dispute or try to refute at least, at least what Nicodemus has just argued or politely asked. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So are you on their side? And you know what's hilarious to me? I'm, I'm sorry, I see, I see funny in, in, in a lot of things. Is that the argument they, they use is the argument that the accursed, stupid people that don't know the world. It's the same argument that some of the people, the common people, are using. You know, but they do not have an argument to what Nicodemus has just presented. They cannot dispute it. They cannot refute it. But we go back to willful, committed unbelief. That's all they want to do. Now, now I get it. I get it. I understand it. You know, these guys, they were the nation's leaders. Accepting Jesus means for just, just leaving everything behind. These guys, they have a following. They have students. They pay them a lot of money to teach them theology. You know, they, they're like walking seminaries. Now, what would happen if, what would have happened if they have to admit 
publicly and to their students that their theology had serious holes. If Jesus is who he claims to be, the whole law has to be reinterpreted now by them. The whole law has to be interpreted around Jesus because Jesus has said that the law testifies of him. The law witnesses about Jesus. Now, their meticulous rules, they're all at risk if they have to do that. Their prestige is at risk if they, if they just acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus has just crushed them a couple of chapters ago publicly. I'm sure people didn't forget that on a Sabbath debate. They're demoralized. For them to go public saying He is the Messiah, it's a very difficult thing to do. They need to forsake everything. Their existence, the very core of what they are and do, would have to be changed. Would have to be reevaluated. I, I get it. It's a terrifying thing. When Jesus comes into your life, and then you have to reveal all of your con- review all of your concepts and leanings, things you like, enjoy, some of them are sinful, some of them are misfocused, and your whole life changes. That's terrifying. They have a lot to lose. So I understand their fear. But if they knew the God of Israel... Their social status wouldn't matter as much as Jesus. Their fame as professors of divinity would not matter as much as Jesus. Their prestige, their money, position, nothing would matter as much as Jesus does. They would gladly, joyfully sell everything they had to get the treasure they found in the field. Because there is where their hearts would be, and that's their treasure. By willfully, deliberately rejecting Jesus, they, they kind of reveal their true nature where who they really work for, that Jesus will unpack in the next chapter. Jesus will tell us who they are. They desire to, uh, to reject and oppose Jesus at all costs. Do you know someone who is opposed to Jesus at all costs? In the next chapter... These guys' identity will be, will be uh, uh, revealed by Jesus. He's going to tell us who these guys are children of. But in the meantime, okay, until then, we have to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Is he a prophet? Is he leading the people astray? Is He the Christ? Is He the unique Son of God who has judgment in His hand? Who alone is the, who is the, the author of life, the Redeemer? Is He a charlatan? Is He a good old guy? Now, don't quote Oprah, don't quote theologians. These guys, they could quote 57 theologians, okay? They have the Scriptures memorized. 
Okay, that's all they did. They sought the glory of one another by quoting one another, having their theological groups and, and cliques. That's all they did. But they are faced with the question right here. Nicodemus answered for himself. Nicodemus is trying to figure it out. He's not going with the, with the pack. You are left with the same question. All kinds of reactions. In this text, there's a few. In the world, there's much more, many, many, many more reactions to Jesus, opinions on how Jesus is. And you have to have one. There is no being indifferent to Jesus. Being indifferent to Jesus is being against Jesus. You cannot be indifferent about Jesus. You have to answer for yourself who this Jesus is. And live out the implications of your answer in your life. And I pray to God that He would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we can behold His beauty and, and welcome the truth and, and live it out even in the midst of so much opposition, so many differences and different views. But knowing this Jesus will be incredibly handy when you're living the implications of knowing Him, believing in Him as what He has claimed to be, the unique Son of God, Redeemer of His people. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, Lord Jesus, I thank you for revealing your beauty to us. I thank you for this portion of scripture that even shows that in your meekness you can be very hard sometimes and you will not commit yourself to unbelief. Let us look at you, Jesus, to have our hearts changed and transformed. Let us know your nature and character so that we can live the implications of, of believing in you for your glory, Father. I pray that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit. You say in this text that by believing in you, by drinking, <laughs> believing in you, we will have rivers of living water, water, flowing from us. Your Holy Spirit has come and it is in Him that we, <clears throat> that we trust to live out the implications of believing the gospel. Let us be empowered by Him day by day as we behold you and move towards that great day where we will be with you with no tears, pain, mourning or cry in heaven where you prepared a place for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.